All right. Hey, you guys. Guess what? 2023 is staring us in the face. Who's ready for that? No? No one? You're like, how is another year gone? Okay, it is. It is, and I'll take a minute today and talk about that. Um, not necessarily that 2023 is staring us in the face, but the fact that it's another year gone. And so I want to take a minute this morning, or actually several minutes, because <laughs> you guys know how long I talk for. So I want to take several minutes this morning, and I want to talk about just, um, man, really kind of what this year has been for us as a church. Uh, but more than that, like who we are and where we're going and what God is calling us to. And so as we, we kind of press pause on our Gospel of John series last week, we'll come back to that in like February or something. Christmas series starts uh, next week. So great time to invite people to church um, through our Christmas series. It's going to be incredible. Um, just a great time, Christmas season, worshiping and stuff together. But today I want to talk about, again, who we are uh, and where we're going. But to answer that question, I feel like I need to first start with why. Why, why spend a Sunday talking about this? this uh, why, why does it matter? You know, if you're, if you're here and you're part of this church, Hope Community is your church home, you're like, yeah, why do we need to talk, take a whole Sunday to talk about this? Because like, uh, I mean, like I, I come to church and isn't that, isn't, isn't that good? I don't need to hear about like why we exist as a church. Or maybe you're someone that uh, you're questioning, you got questions about faith, you're here, you're watching online, you're like, I'm not really sure what I believe, so why should I care uh, about what you have to say today? Um, and quite simply, I'll, I'll give the really, really churchy answer. The simple answer to why we're talking about this today is Jesus, okay? That's just, that's just the pat answer for church. It's like the answer is always Jesus. But seriously, it is. The simple answer uh, is that we really do believe that every single person uh, in this room, in this community, on the planet needs Jesus. And by extension, they need his church. Because as messed up as we can be as human beings sometimes, and as many issues as we have, for some reason, God said, okay, my church, my people, that's the vehicle that I'm going to use to, to spread the, the message of Jesus and the love of Jesus into the world. And so, like, we need Jesus on kind of multiple levels. Like, there's this, what we would talk about as Christians, like, theologically, that would be like, well, you know, humanity has a problem with sin and with evil and with death, and Jesus comes to, to solve those things and to, to give his life so we can have uh, freedom and forgiveness and we can have new life in him and, and death has no hold on us. And, and that's true, but then also kind of practically and pragmatically, that plays out in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and the reason why this is so significant is because Jesus and his church are a net positive for the world. They are a net positive for our communities. And, and sometimes we don't necessarily be, see this because the church gets a lot of bad press. And let me say, a lot of times for good reason, because sometimes Christians be acting crazy and I just want to slap them, but then I realize that wouldn't be very Jesus-like, okay? But like, but like overall, when you look at the, the statistics, when you look at history, when you look at worldwide kind of information, Jesus and his church are a net positive. Uh, Pastor Paul and I did a podcast on this actually uh, like last week. If you listen to our podcast, you've already heard this, but I want to touch on just some, some ideas to frame this up for us, okay? So this comes out of the, the Harvard Human Flourishing Program. Harvard has a human flourishing research program where they uh, look at like how, how to, what, what's best for humans, how do humans do well, how do they thrive, how do they flourish from Harvard University. So like it's like legit research, not biased. Um, and here are some of their findings, talking specifically about like, <laughs> I realize when I'm old when I say this, young people today. I used to be the young people today, not so much anymore. But middle school, high school, college-age students, uh, the impact that church has in their lives. That, that, that kids and teenagers who are part of church and raised in the church are 12% less likely to suffer from depression. 33% less likely to use illicit drugs. 30% less likely to start having sex at a young age. 40% less likely to have an STD. And it's not just negative things that are prevented, but it's positive things that end up in people's lives. They're 18% more likely to report high levels of happiness. 
87% more likely to have high levels of generosity, 38% more likely to volunteer in their community, and 48% more likely to have a sense of mission and purpose. It's not just kids. Here's a stat like across the board that I thought was, this was just like wild to me, that um, according to the same uh, uh, information and research, that attending church once a week or more can decrease mortality by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. Like, if you're like, I'm going to church, and church is part of my life, you do that for like a big chunk of your life for 15 years, you are 20 to 30% just less likely to die across the board. I'm like, that is crazy. Like, and, and like, you don't even have to believe everything the church believes. If you just by going, just by being there, there's something that, that happens that is a net positive. Uh, some more research was done by the University of North Carolina. Dr. Jane Furwith, I believe I'm pronouncing her last name uh, correctly. It's kind of spelled funky. Um, but they, they looked at, again, mental health and depression and specifically in younger generations. And this was their finding, and this is her quote. When we look at the most depressed individuals, what we find is that increasing religiosity, so their word, increasing religiosity by one standard deviation, which she defines as going from not going to church at all to attending church once a week, that decreases the probability of being at risk for moderate to severe depression by as much as 20%. Right, this is Harvard University. This is University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is like people that like have no like bias in terms of like we're Christian, we care. They're just like, look, there is a net positive when a church, when someone that wants part of someone's life, that the message of Jesus and the church that carries that message is life-giving, is life-saving, it is life-changing with like empirical data to back it up. And I say that to, to say this and to get into this idea today. If you are a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and if you are part of this church, what I want you to know and to understand is you are part of something that's so much bigger than yourself. Like your faith, yes, it's your faith and it's your relationship with Jesus, but it's so much bigger than that. You are a part of something that is literally changing the world. That God's love and his grace and his hope and his goodness are coming into the world and changing lives and it happens through people like you and me. If you're someone that has questions or maybe skeptical about faith and, and you're not sure where you're at or what you believe, I would say this, that even if you, you may say, I don't, I don't believe what you believe, I'm not like a Christian, I'm not a church person, you should still, you should be able to say, you know what, I don't believe that, but I want there to be healthy and growing churches in my community because when there is, people's lives are better. And here's the really exciting news with our conversation this morning is our church, Hope Community, this is your church, we are a healthy and growing church, you guys. Like this is, this is incredibly exciting. There is something that is going on here. God is up to something. And what's even more exciting is like the way things are trending and you know, we nerd out and look at data like Pastor Paul and I do. It's like, we're just getting started. Like we are just at the beginning. We are right on the cusp of what God is about to do. Let me just kind of give you a snapshot of this past year. Right, some stories that, we've, that, that I've heard, things that, I'm like, that people have told me this. And I'm just like, this is incredible. Um, I've heard that my marriage was saved because of this church. We've heard that, hey, I was lonely and I had no one who was really in my corner, but I found community and people who know me and love me because of this church. I've been battling with a, on a mental health journey. I've been battling through depression and I only made it because of this church. And when people share those stories, it's not really that Hope Community is awesome. What they're saying is that Jesus has changed my life, but he's used this church to do it. How about let's just talk about generosity. Generosity is a huge value for us as a church. We kind of were always like, you know what? We want to be a generous church from the very beginning when we had like hardly any people and hardly any money. We're like, what, what we do have, we want to give it away. We want to give it away. We want to give it away. Pretty cool news. Pastor Paul and I, we walked into the bank this week and we paid off the remainder of our 25, what was left on our loan, which was $25,000 this week. We're like, hey, here you go. $25,000 is paid off. Hope Community is entirely debt-free because of the generosity of people like you. And that's not to just say, well, well, yeah, we don't have a bill to pay. That's to say now every single month there's more money that can go to ministry. 
There's more that we can do to say, hey, the love and the hope and the forgiveness and the goodness of Jesus wants to go into our community, and we're able to say yes to more opportunities to do that. We have some incredible giving partners. Again, generosity is a value for us, not just as individuals, but as a, as a collective. We're like, we want to put our money where our mouth is. We're not going to encourage you to be generous people if we're not generous as a church. And so we give away 10% of everything that comes into the church. As a church, we tithe. And so we, we partner with some really great organizations locally and globally, places like Minerva Mission, Salvation Army, Hannah's House, Alpha, uh, Compassion International, the Phoenix Foundation. And we're like, 10%, we're giving to them, giving to them. And we had a certain amount budgeted, and we come to the end of the year, and we're crunching numbers and figuring out where we're at. And we're like, oh, no, we have a problem. You guys outgave our projections this year. And so this past week, we sent another $4,000 out into our community and into the world because y'all are so incredibly generous. God is doing something through your generosity. We talk about just stories and, and people's stories in real life situations. You look around the room, even on a Sunday today, um, which is statistically one of the worst attended church Sundays in America for the year is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Do y'all know that? It is because everyone's like food coma, family in town. I think I'll skip today, right? Like, or people are traveling or whatever. And the room is full today. And every single week over the past couple of weeks, it's like, we got to set up chairs. We got to set up more chairs. We got to set up more chairs. When 12 months ago, I was like, yeah, you know, there's some people here. But God is bringing more people. I want to talk specifically about our student ministry. Again, the, the, the next generation is going to shape and change the world with what God wants to do through them that are battling through things that my generation and those of you who are older, we can't even begin to imagine because life is so different. At the beginning of the year, our student ministry was like six to eight kids. We're like 15 to 20 every week now. I'm like, where are they coming from? I don't know. And the cool thing is like some of them, their story is, hey, you know what? I'm not a Christian. In fact, I don't like church, and my experience with Christians is bad. I hate them, but I love it here. Like God is doing something through this church and through you, and it's only just the beginning. Like we are at the starting point, and where we, are, where we were is not where we are now, and where we are now is not where we'll be in the future. God wants to continue to do something because a, a church, when it's healthy, a healthy church should grow. And two different kind of levels. A healthy church should grow spiritually, right? Like as we do life together and as we're healthy individuals, we come together and we, our faith in God grows, our love for each other grows, our love for our neighbors grow, our knowledge and our love for God, that grows as well. So there's a, a depth of growth that happens, but a healthy church should grow numerically as well. A healthy church, the gospel should be going out, should be changing people's lives. And that's not like just opinion of mine, but when you open up the, the pages of the New Testament and you start reading about what the early church looked like, it's just like thing after thing. The first actually uh, mention of it that we read is in Acts 2.47. It says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I actually had all the, the, the references to this listed in, um, in the message today, but the message was too long, so I had to cut them out. But there's like a dozen times throughout the book of Acts where it's like, and many people came to believe, and many Jews and Greeks came to believe, and many men and prominent women came to believe, and the Lord added to their number, and more and more of those who were being saved, and like over and over and over and over again, this idea that God keeps adding to their number, and I'm crazy enough to believe, and I think we have a church full of people who are crazy enough to believe, that if God did that then, there's no reason he can't do it now. It's the same God. It's the same gospel. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same. People have the same problem. God still has a heart for the broken and the lost and the hurting. And God wants to do what he did then. He wants to do it now and continue to have people's lives transformed by the good news and the gospel of Jesus and to see our world transformed. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we do that, man? Like, how do we, how do we continue to be healthy and growing? And so we're gonna talk about this over the next couple of minutes. Well, we're gonna talk about this is how a church grows spiritually and numerically, but also as individuals, like I want you to internalize this for your own life because these principles are the very same thing that will help your faith to grow as well. 
Like God has just kind of baked something into this is the way that growth happens when you do these kind of things. So uh, Acts chapter two, right? This is where we're gonna, this is, this is gonna be the end of the message today, but we're gonna start at the end and then go to the beginning and come back to the end, right? Okay. So at the end, at the end of the chapter, we get this God adding to their number, but how did we get to that point? Acts chapter two opens up with this, this beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit coming. And Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he, he tells his disciples, you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna, in other words, I'm leaving, I'm handing this whole enterprise off to you guys, this thing called the church. You're gonna go, you're gonna spread this message, you're gonna reach the world. But he says, don't go anywhere yet, don't do it yet, until you get power from on high, until the Holy Spirit comes. And you, you read the, the opening of Acts two, and it's like, boom, Holy Spirit comes. And these disciples are, of Jesus are filled with the power of the Spirit. And, and like right off the bat, as soon as they're, they're filled, they're like, okay, we gotta go tell people now. And so the apostle Peter stands up and he gives like the first kind of like Christian sermon at this, uh, in the city of Jerusalem. It's at a festival called uh, Pentecost and there's thousands and thousands of Jewish people who've come into the city for this, this festival. And Peter stands up and he starts preaching and he, he talks in a way that's like very, very Jewish because he's talking to mostly a Jewish crowd. And so he's quoting from the Old Testament and pointing to like, hey, Jesus was this Messiah. But essentially his message comes down to this. This Jesus, he was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. And as he looks at all these people, he says, you killed him. Like, and some of them literally were the people who were there shouting, like, crucify him, crucify him. But he's talking to all of them, saying, like, collectively, all of you killed him. And he could talk to us today and say, you killed Jesus. Because it's our evil and our sin and just what we see, like, just evil unleashed on the world that Jesus said, I'm coming to die for that. So he says, you killed him. But that wasn't the end of the story, that God raised him from the dead, and talking of himself and the other disciples, and they said, we have seen him. Like, we had breakfast with him on the beach a couple of weeks ago. Okay, guys, we've, we've talked to him. We have seen him. And now you need to respond to that. They're, they're like, what do we do? And they say, repent, which literally just means to, to change your thinking about something. You had, you had thought one way about this Jesus, but now you need to see him in a different life. And you need to orient and organize your life around this new way of seeing him, that he is Lord and Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And so Peter gets up and preaches what we would call the gospel. He stands up and says, like, sin is the reason Jesus was here. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Now respond to that. And so the foundation of the church and the foundation of any healthy church, the foundation, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the foundation of your life, it is this idea of spirit-filled, gospel-centered. Like, it is is filled and empowered by the spirit. There's got to be this reality of knowing that anything I try to do on my own, it will fall flat if God's not in it. Anything that we try to do as a church on our own, you can be like, if it's like, oh, our worship is great, the preaching is meh, okay, and, and like the programs are awesome, and I love the people, but if God's not in it, everything that we do will amount to just garbage. It's got to be spirit-filled, and then it's gospel-centered. It's like, hey, we are about Jesus. It is about his life, his death, his resurrection. It's like my life is about Jesus. That's my foundation. That is my, my everything. And so pre- Peter preaches this message, right? And people respond. There are 3,000 people that are like, hey, we're in. Let's go. And they get baptized, and now, boom, you have this, this church that just exploded after that first message. And it's cool because there are these Jewish people who are there from different areas of the world. They're there to celebrate that festival of Pentecost. And so after many of them give their lives to Jesus, they go back home, and they take the gospel with them. And you see the church and the message of Jesus start to spread and start to multiply. But after uh, Luke, who's the, the, gospel, or the, the author of the book of Acts, after he kind of tells us, hey, this is what happened, he gives us this little snapshot into, and here's what their faith looked like. Here's what that church looked like. Here's how it was defined. Acts 2.42. He says, and they devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The first thing he says, he says, listen, there, there was a devotion that happened in these earliest followers of Jesus. That there was no such thing as kind of casual Christianity in the first century. It was like, you're, you're in or you're not. Because like it, it, first century Christianity was like, I'm giving, I understand that if I'm gonna do this, I have to give my life for this because there's a very high probability that it will actually cost me my life. To be a follower of Jesus in like, you know, first century Roman, there was a good chance that you were gonna be persecuted, you were gonna be killed, you were gonna be tortured, you were gonna be in prison. It's like, I gotta know, man, like if I'm doing this, I'm doing this because this could cost me my life. There was this devotion. There was like, this is everything. And the way that that kind of fleshed out in their faith, he lists four things. He says the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and a prayer. The first thing was like the apostles' teaching. So the apostles are the, the, like kind of the original disciples. And so the guys that were there uh, with Jesus that were kind of entrusted leadership of the church to. And so it's the 12 that Jesus calls minus Judas, and then later the apostle Paul. And so the early church would go to them like, tell us. Tell us, what was he like? What did he do? What did he say? Because these, the, these were the people who were with Jesus. They saw the miracles. They heard him teach. They, 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 they saw his death, and then they, they witnessed the resurrection. And then they're like, okay, so if we want to know about Jesus and what he has for our lives, we got to go to the people who were there. They didn't have a Bible that they could pick up and be like, oh, see here in this, uh, this passage right here, Jesus said this. They're like, no. Then they're like, no, John, tell me, what did Jesus say? And so they, they sat under the apostles' teaching, and those apostles who taught later became apostles who wrote so the Apostle John, who was teaching, later wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation. Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was there teaching, wrote first the letters of 1st and 2nd Peter, and Peter also gives his account to the Gospel writer, Mark. Matthew, who was one of the apostles, one of those original disciples, writes down his account of the life of Jesus. We have it as the Gospel of Matthew. And so they sat under the Apostles' teaching, and we do as well, albeit in a different form. So we want to know, like, okay, I need to go to the source. Those who were with Jesus, those who saw him, those who witnessed these things, what did they have to say? And we open up our New Testament and say, here's what they had to say. And if we want a life, you know, a faith that's growing, a church that's growing, there has to be a devotion, a commitment, an engagement with what we would say, the, the scriptures. The second thing they devote themselves to is fellowship. Now, if you're here um, and you have any kind of, like, a church background, as soon as I said fellowship, you have something in mind, and it's probably wrong, right? Because fellowship is like, well, we're going to have a potluck, okay? And you know it's fellowship because it happens in the fellowship hall, okay? We don't have a fellowship hall at this church, right? And it's like, or a fellowship is like, we have a men's fellowship breakfast once a month, right? Like, this is fellowship, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with those things, but those things are not fellowship in the, in the biblical New Testament sense of fellowship, Fellowship literally means here um, that having everything in common. We're going to see an example of this in a couple of verses. It, it literally means a shared life, a life together, where it's just like there is an, when it comes to our, our faith and our life in Christ, there's an inseparability among the believers. That there was no such thing as individualistic Christianity in the first century. This idea of like it's just me and Jesus and we're good. In fact, throughout most of church history, that's never been a thing. That has only been a thing kind of since Western individualism has taken over over the last few hundred years. But up until that point, there was always a, if I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, it means that my life, I'm doing life with other people. There's a connection. And out of that fellowship, there's a couple of things that flow. It said that they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So part of fellowship was they just they shared meals together. In fact, at this time in history, to, to share a meal with someone was one of the, uh, this idea of table fellowship was one of the most intimate things that you could do. Um, 
kind of our culture, we don't talk very well about intimacy. For us, intimacy like pretty much means one thing. It's about romance. It's like that's, that's such a shame because intimacy is so much more than that. That's one example. But to, be, to have intimacy, we're, we're called to have intimacy with each other as followers of Jesus and with God. It's this idea of I, I, am, I am known by others and I know them as well. It's like if you and I, like we're, we're followers of Jesus, there's a sense in which it's like you know me and I know you, the good parts and the bad parts. And we are sharing life together and there's a togetherness that happens and to sit and have a meal with someone at this time, it was this way of saying, like, I'm with you. You're with me. That, 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 that we are together, and there's like a public association with one another, which was so crazy, considering the people who would become part of this church. That people who became followers of Jesus in the first century, you had all these different groups. You had men and women. You had rich people and poor people. You had Jews and non-Jewish people. You had slaves and slaveholders. And it's like all of them came together uh, at, in the church, groups of people who in culture and in society at the time, never crossed paths. They did not talk to each other. They did not associate with each other. In some cases, they hated each other. And yet these ones who were Christians, they sit down and they eat together. And it was something that made the people around them go, this is, what is happening here? This is crazy. This table kind of fellowship. And part of that breaking of bread and those meals together also included, you know, what we did a little bit ago, this idea of communion. It looked very different for them as it would have been part of this, this meal Right, that they would, they would eat together and uh, bread and wine would be staples of any diet. And so at, at a point in the meal, they, they would pause and they would reflect and be like, okay, we're breaking this bread now. We're pouring out this wine. The symbolic reminder that Jesus was broken, his blood was poured out and it would be done in such a way where you're sitting at a meal and you can see each other and you're, you're looking at each other eye to eye and there's this idea of like, he did this for us and we are in this together and our lives collectively, it's all about him. They devoted themselves to that kind of fellowship, to breaking of bread and then to prayer. Again, this reliance upon God. We're praying together. We're praying on our own. We're praying privately. We're praying publicly that if God's not in this, we can't do this. They devoted themselves. They were engaged with Jesus and his church. Because of that, it says that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. And so something was happening in the church. It was like, God is among these people. Lives are being changed. Something is, is happening here. And all the believers, this is kind of like the uh, expanded version of fellowship, that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Maybe you, you've, some translations say they were of one accord. It literally just means that there was a unity of purpose, that they were together, they understood that our lives as individuals and our lives collectively, there is one purpose and that purpose is to make much of Jesus. And because of that togetherness, that in commonness, it overflowed into radical generosity, that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Like, like the, this is, the, <laughs> some people say that this is like, um, this passage right here, this is the most socialist passage in the New Testament. Because <laughs> it's like, yay, we're going to share. And some of you are like, we're leaving now, okay. This is America, darn it. Um, but it's, it's this idea, it wasn't like under compulsion. And also, it wasn't like a one-time thing. The, 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 the tense of, the verb tense of sold, it's like, it's imperfect. So it, wasn't, it doesn't communicate that they did this once and they put all their money collectively into one big pot and then nobody ever had anything. The implication is that, that as needs continued to arise, it was an ongoing thing. As needs would arise, people would step up to meet those needs. And so it'd be like, man, someone in the church has a need and it'd be like, well, hey, I have this extra field and I don't really need it. It's just extra to me. Let me sell that and give it to you so that you can make ends meet. Oh, I, you know, someone has a need in the church. And so, you know, I don't really need this house. Let me move in some, with some family members. We'll sell this house so that we can help those needs be met. Look, someone, someone needs to be taken in. We'll take them into our home. There's just this idea of radical, radical, radical generosity. We're out of their love for Jesus and their love for each other. Like we will be radically generous and make sure there are no needs among these people. 
It's crazy fellowship. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread and homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. To me, this might be the most crazy part about the early Christians, that they did this every day. Like, there's sometimes when it's like, oh, I got to go to church once a week. Man. I mean, there's, hey, guys, there's sometimes when I'm like the pastor, I'm like, I don't want to preach today. Can I stay home? Okay, just confessions of a pastor time, right? And it's like every day they would get up early before the sun rose, before they went off to work, and they would eat together and pray together and sing together and then go to their jobs. And then after work, they would come back together and eat together and pray together and sing together. There was just like a, we're in this thing. And they met in two specific places that Luke tells us about, the temple courts and also homes. And both of those are significant. And both of those are necessary, and both of those are important. And so they, they, he says they met in temple, the temple courts, and so they were, they were Jewish. They had this Jewish background. The earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish. And so they would continue to go to the temple until some persecution broke out and the church scattered. But it's interesting, you think about, well, why were they going to the temple? Because the, the functions of the temple really were no longer necessary for these followers of Jesus. You would go to the temple to make sacrifices. Well, the, the followers of Jesus were like, well, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need to make sacrifices anymore. You go to the temple to go to the high priest, and Christians believe, well, no, Jesus is our high priest. We don't need someone to go between us and God. Jesus is doing that on our behalf. You go to the temple because at that time, that was thought like the presence of God is in the temple, but the Christians, they believe that no, the presence of God, his Holy Spirit lives within us, and so you don't have to go to a building to meet with God, and yet they continued to do so. Most scholars, they, they talk about this idea that, that the temple was a place for witness, while the home was the place for like fellowship and discipleship. The temple was the place where they would go, it was, a, it was where crowds gathered, it was a public place. And so it would be a place for the earliest followers of Jesus, a place of evangelism. It was a place of proclamation. It was a place where they would show up and declare King Jesus and his kingdom. This public proclamation of the message of Jesus. And then the homes, they met together and they ate and they prayed and there was teaching and there was fellowship and there was figuring out who had needs and how we could handle all of that. And that kind of two two-pronged approach, honestly, like that shapes who we are as a church and why we do things the way that we do things. We think that both parts are needed, right? Like they're, they're, we, we have these kind of two different environments. We have like this, like our Sunday gathering, and then we have community groups that meet during the week. And, and both are necessary and they can't take the place of one another. So like this, man, we come here on a Sunday morning. This is primarily a place of proclamation, right? We talk about Jesus. We talk about his kingdom. We talk about what it looks like to follow him. This is a place where anyone can kind of come in. It's a public place. People can come, people can go, and, but you're gonna hear about the good news of King Jesus and his kingdom. It's a place of proclamation. It's not necessarily a place where we're gonna be like, hey guys, we're gonna turn church into just a meal and we're gonna have some discussion because if we did that, we would lose our proclamation. But then we have our homes and community groups where we eat together and pray together and do life with one another. We open up the scriptures together. This is why we, why we harp so much and push on community groups because we know that without both, Christian life doesn't happen, right? Like there, there's something that happens when you're meeting in someone's home where you can really get gut level honest about what's going on in your life and where Jesus is intersecting that, where we can encourage each other, call each other out if we need to, where we can go, I was reading this passage and here's what I thought, what did you think about this? And there's this back and forth that happens. And so, man, if we want to be a church that looks like the early church, we want a faith that grows like theirs, a church that grows like theirs, and we think community group is a priority. And not just be a part of one, but prioritize it. Because maybe for some of you, like, I've been in a group before, wasn't that great? Um, I've been in mostly good group experiences, but I've had some ones that weren't so good throughout my life. And I can say that we will get, you will get out of a group what you put into it. 
So if you think, man, my group experience wasn't that great, then next time be like, hey, guys, I want this to be better. I want it to be more. Let's figure out how this thing can look. It's got to be priority. And I get, I, I hear you arguing with me saying, but I'm so busy. There's so much going on. And I get it. I live in the real world too, right? I've had, always had multiple jobs. My wife, Christy, works a full-time job. We've got two little kids at home. We've got family obligations. We have so much going on here at the church from leadership meetings to student stuff to things I'm involved in in the community through the church and different things. But the one thing that's like, you will not touch my Thursday nights. Like, it just, it is, it is off limits on the calendar. Unless, that's when, our, that's when our small group meets. Unless we are sick, we are going to group. Like, I don't prioritize my group around my life. I, prior, or I don't schedule group around life. I schedule life around my group because I need that. I, mean, I need to show up on Thursday night and I need people to pour into me and call me out when I need it and to pray for me and say, hey, how are you actually doing? And, and wh- what's Jesus doing in your life? And I would hope that my group would say they need that for me as well. And I need my kids to be a part of our group. They love group because they get to play with their friends but more than anything. By the time they're 18 and they move out, what I want them to see is that, you know what? Mom and dad always prioritize this. I want them to have a, a faith that whenever they grow up, they just think it's normal to have other people who are speaking into your life. I don't want them to seem like that's some sort of anomaly. Prioritizing group, man, doing life together, being in community, committing to that. And so the, the next thing that we, we read about this early church, I love this, this is so cool. They were praising God so there was worship and they just enjoyed the favor of all the people around them. Man, if Christians could just work on that part, I think we'd be pretty good. Right, there was something about what Jesus was doing in their lives and his goodness and his love was overflowing in them that like even the people around them that didn't believe what they believed were like, you know what? I got nothing bad to say about them. Like they're just, like they're just, they're, we're better because they're here. I think they're crazy. I think they're wrong about what they believe, but wow, they're good for our community. Their, their neighbors took notice. And so we, we kind of go on this journey through Acts 2. We see like, man, it's a, it's a church that's spirit-filled and it's gospel-centered. It, it's a church where there's and they're, they're, they're meeting in temple, the temple and they're meeting in homes where there's proclamation, but then there's also fellowship. And there, there's witness and evangelism, but there's discipleship where they're eating and they're praying and they're learning and they're giving. And then after all of that, and there's that comprehensive picture, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's like then God did something. And notice it is God who does it, right? Like there's nothing that we can do to change a person's life. We believe that Jesus does that. We kind of set the scene for that. The Lord added to the number daily those who are being saved. We don't get to the Lord added in verse 47 without everything that precedes it in chapter two. And so there's something that, man, God, again, as as you as an individual, as you try to figure out faith, if you're a Christian or you're trying to explore faith, God doesn't do something in us as individuals and he doesn't, won't do something in our church without our active participation in it. And he's not gonna be like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm just gonna do this thing. And if you're like, kind of like a pushing against that, we see this pattern that kind of forms. God says, yeah, people have free will and they have this choice and I want, I want you to partner with what I'm doing. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. In fact, it's a little bit crazy, but I thought I could even say it this way, that the only thing that can limit what God wants to do in your life and in this church is you and me. I believe with everything in me that God wants to, I mean, he wants to do things in our lives. He wants us to know him. He wants us to grow closer to him. He wants us to have a relationship with him and our faith to be big and thriving. And and he wants to do things in and through this church. He wants the gospel to go out and people to be saved and people to be transformed. Like like that's, that's God's heart. That's his desire. The question then becomes like, okay, like that's what God wants to do. Well, I say, okay, let's go. Let's do this. God, I want to be a part of that. I want to, I want to look like that early church. I want to be devoted. I want to engage. 
And so as we kind of talk about what this looks like for us as a church, we have language that we put around this. And it really flows out of this picture that we have um, that we see here in Acts 2. But this is why we exist as a church. We exist to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in the life and mission of Hope Community. We are here to inspire people. We can't force anybody to follow Jesus. I mean, even if we could, it wouldn't work, right? Can't convince you, can't argue you into a relationship with Jesus, but we can keep just putting forth this picture of, of a Jesus that is a good and beautiful and merciful and loving king. We want people to follow. It's a lifelong journey, following Jesus by doing two things, engaging them in the life and mission of the church. The life of the church are those things that we saw in Acts 2 where it was, hey, they're meeting in homes and they're eating together and they're praying together and they're listening to teaching and, and they're, they're serving and they're giving. It's like, so hey, the life of the church is about corporate worship. It's about community group. It's about prayer. It's about private disciplines. It's about, it's about serving. It's about giving. That's part of the life of the church, but it's a two-sided thing because if we lean too heavy into the life part of the church, it's really easy to become a really close-knit, tight group of small people it's really hard for anyone who isn't a part of our group to become a part of. And so there's also the mission. There's the outward facing part of the church. It's the early church going into the temples and saying, hey, let me tell you about King Jesus. It's the early church in the first century somehow having the favor of all the people around them where they lived lives that were so different that people took notice. And so we want you to engage in the mission of the church, to, to serve in the church, to serve in the community, to be generous, to do these things, and to create a culture of invite where you begin to inform, you know, relationships with people when God gives you that little nudge and you know when it happens because you're like, oh gosh, it's happening. I feel like I should talk to this person. There was an opportunity in this conversation and you're like, I don't want to. I don't want to. But when that happens, again, because we can't do it if God's not moving, where it's just like, hey, you know, you'd said this, let me just tell you how my faith impacts my life in this area. And when I say inviting people, maybe that's inviting them into a conversation. That's inviting them to a cup of coffee. It's inviting them to what we do here on a Sunday morning because this is a place of, again, proclamation. It's a great season to invite as Christmas comes up. This is how we do things here. And again, it's this twofold picture, like engaging people in the life and mission of the church that, that grows people spiritually, that, you know, that, that reaches more people, but also if you engage in the life and mission of the church, you'll grow as an individual. You jump into these things and begin seeing things through this lens. God does something in our lives. So the question just becomes, will we engage? And I, I'll say, I can say with confidence that I don't know what will happen if you do. I don't know exactly, like, I can't be like, I guarantee you, if you engage in the life and the mission of the church, X, Y, and Z will happen. But what I can guarantee is whatever happens, that you will look back on that moment and say, wow, I can't believe what God did. I can't believe how different my life looks. I can't believe how my family was transformed. I can't believe, you know, that those friends that I had, how, how things changed in their life. I cannot believe what God did in kind of me personally and individually in my sphere of influence because I said, I'm gonna be fully devoted. I'm gonna be engaged. Jesus, let's go. But I can also say collectively, I can't guarantee exactly what will happen, but collectively we'll be able to look back and say, would you look at what God is doing in this community? Look at what he's doing in, in, in Minerva and in the surrounding areas. Would you look at how many, look, look at the stories of life change. Look at the stories of, of relationships and marriages restored. Look at the stories of, uh, of people breaking addictions. Look at the story of people uh, journeying through mental health. Look at these stories of, of people finding meaning and purpose. Would you look at what God is doing? Can you believe that we get to be a part of that? 
I don't know exactly what it will look like, but I know that we're just getting started. And I know that God is going to do some incredible things. And I know the only question is like, will I say yes or not? And so as we move into the Christmas season, as we move into the months and years beyond, man, I'm so excited about what God wants to do. And just extend a simple invitation, will you come be a part of it?